Good morning, God's family. It's a joy to be with you and worship with you and share from God's Word today. Thank you, Pastor Tom, for your wonderful introduction and gracious invitation. I'm truly honored for the privilege of being with you today. A couple of years ago, uh, City Church blessed our ministry by sending your senior pastor to India to train pastors, as he said. In fact, hundreds of pastors were touched by his dedication, um, his uh, teaching, and his prayers of uh, healing. Uh, God did wonders uh, through his ministry. Uh, I was uh, really trying to make him happy by, you know, doing this and that. But he said, bro, don't worry about this. He least cared about food, and he least cared about comfortable stay. But he demanded something every time. You know what? One glass of hot water every day morning so that he could have coffee with God. (laughs) Man, that was the way to begin uh, his day. So I learned so much from him, and the city church is immensely blessed to have such a godly pastor. So praise God. (laughs) And uh, this is my family. Um, They couldn't be here today, but uh, uh, this is my wife, Jasmine, of, uh, uh, I mean, wife of 18 years, and that is uh, Jason. We didn't have children for 11 years, so we have to drive all the way from Kentucky to find Jennifer Durham in 2010. Um, Because, I don't know, some people told me that she's gifted in praying for children. So if anybody is, you know, so she's in demand now. So... So God gave us Jason, and then um, we are also blessed with another Jonathan. Uh, We are uh, actually raising uh, ministers in India uh, through Serving Alongside International. We have Compassion Ministries. We help widows and children, and also we train pastors. Uh, Our dream is to raise at least 25,000 pastors in the next 20 years. We already raised 6,000 pastors. And uh, this February and March, I was in India traveling to different places and preaching God's word and uh, teaching. And uh, we trained 950 plus pastors in different parts of India. The training we did this time impacts truly uh, 162,000 members in their congregation. So we are uh, so grateful for the impact that Serving Alongside uh, International has. Thankfully, I was able to come back uh, just in time uh, before, the fan, before the pandemic froze the world travel. Um, you know, just as the way it has affected uh, every country on the planet Earth, it has affected India as well. In the last six months, uh, we were able to help about 1,000-plus uh, families with uh, uh, food and medical supplies. And God uh, empowered us to be His hands and feet Uh, to the people in need. And thousands of rural pastors uh, in India um, are financially struggling because they do not have any sort of income because the churches are shut down for the last six to seven months. Uh, So I got a a message from one of the pastors uh, last week uh, which said, Sir, uh, my wife and two kids, we haven't eaten anything for the last three days. That touched my heart and we sent quickly help, and he said it was a a celebration for him. 
the family could go to city, get some groceries, and survive. That's the kind of um, the situation that we have there. So I just want you to pray for our ministry, and I don't want to tell much about it, but if you want to know more about it, you can go to our website, servingalongside.org, or you can go to uh, our table outside with uh, proper social distancing and pick up a brochure and uh, pray what God has you to do with it. And that's the end of commercials. <laughs> okay, let's move to God's Word. Today I would like to talk about our missional identity and responsibility. The scripture portion I have chosen for this morning comes from a familiar mission passage found in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men, and I also add women. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Western Christianity dominated the global church with 70% of Christians living in the West. At the turn of the 21st century, it had shrunk from 70% to 28%. The shift of the center of Christianity from the West to the global South has happened when the Western church began to decline in its passion for local evangelism and global missions. Think about the church in Europe, which once sent missionaries all over the world. Today, it is, survive, it is struggling to survive, and it thrived as long as it had passion for local evangelism and global missions. Think about North India, where we live. We are not too far from a country like Europe, which needs lots of missionaries. Today, there are about 12,000 missionaries in Great Britain, trying to win the British. And they are missionaries from Africa and Asia. So now, America is not too far from needing missionaries like that from the global south. Recently, I read an article which said 52% Americans say Jesus isn't God, but was a great teacher. Do you know that one-third of the evangelicals within this country do not believe in the divinity of Christ? They do not believe that Jesus is God, neither Son of God. How come a country that is built on Judeo-Christian principles is gradually losing its passion for God's kingdom? How is that a country that gives a tremendous religious freedom to the ethnic minorities and other religious groups is 
not boldly using the same religious freedom to propagate the gospel. How is that we are losing that? In the passage we read today, Jesus reminds his disciples their missional identity in the very first year of his ministry so that they will follow him meaningfully and fulfill their calling faithfully. That was his intention. He told them that you are the salt and light in the world. He uttered those declarative maxims in the perspective of the mission that he was preparing them for. And in verse 13 he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and be trampled on by men. I believe the disciples were surprised to hear such an honor from Jesus that they are the salt of the earth because the salt has a, a high value during that time. It's an expensive and extremely valuable commodity. It was used in food for flavor and preservatives. And in medical field, it was used as antibiotic and a healing agent. In legal matters, it served as a sign of agreement. And in economic matters, it was given as wages for hard work. And in religious ceremonies, it stood as an element of purity. And in social relationships, it became a symbol of loyalty. Greeks call it divine because it has over 14,000 uses. If we take those uses of salt, the benefits of salt, and apply it for our spiritual life, we can draw dozens of implications from this passage, but I would like to focus on the missional aspect this morning. So now, when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he is saying, you have a missional responsibility. How do you know that? If you read a few verses before this passage, Jesus was telling them the purpose he had called them. He called them to be his witnesses. And because of being his witnesses, they would go through false accusations and persecutions. And he did not give them a plan to escape. But he gave them an encouragement to say that they have to rejoice despite of false accusations and persecutions and oppositions. And then he says they have to remain Loyal to his calling. That's what he said. You are the salt of the earth. They knew how God told the Israelites to use the salt in every sacrifice and offering, including grain offering. Because they have to remember that they can't offer anything without attaching their commitment to that. They knew how God made the covenant of salt with David, which is an everlasting one, which can never be broken. So he was giving that perspective to them that they should follow him with that level of commitment. And disciples got what he was saying because they followed him by leaving their nets, their jobs, their business to become the fishers of men. That was their calling. Mark makes it clear in chapter 3 verse 14. Jesus chose 12 of them to be his apostles. Look here, to be his apostles. Apostle, apostello in Greek, which means I send. It's basically sender, you know, he's sending them. He called them to be his goers so that they could be with him. He also wanted to send them out to preach. So dual purpose 
is mentioned here. When you are following Jesus, you have a purpose to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and at the same time, to go out and become like Jesus for people. So the purpose of calling his disciples unto him, to learn from him, and to be fishers of men, so we have no other way around it. Andrew, the first disciple of Jesus, is a perfect example of that. In John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, it is written, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And verse 42, which is my favorite, says, and he brought him to Jesus. And he brought him to Jesus. You look at that. The first disciple has done right what Jesus intended him to do. So the invitation to follow Jesus involves the missional responsibility of bringing, enlisting people in the kingdom of God. Most of us think that we're Christians because we believe Jesus Christ. It is partially true, but we are not just called to be his worshipers in a church setting like this and remain believers, but we are also called to be the followers of Jesus in his mission. An American missionary to China, Charles Hillis, once said, every heart with Christ is a missionary. And every heart without Christ is a mission field. Do you know when you gave your heart to the Lord, you entered a covenant with God because of what God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for you. If you said yes to Jesus, you have become born again and entered a covenant with him. And you are not your own. You are bought with a price for a purpose. Remember that. And Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us this ministry on the cross of Calvary. Therefore, we are who? The ambassadors of Christ. Don't forget that. We are the ambassadors. We are commissioned by Jesus to represent him. That is our response. That's our basic responsibility. So one of the qualities of being the salt is to create in people thirst for Jesus who is the water of life. So that is what the salt does. If you become the salt in this world for Jesus, you create thirst in people for Jesus. Secondly, salt reminds us of our commitment and faithfulness to his calling to that missional responsibility. So Jesus warned his disciples of the danger of losing one's missional purpose. He said unto them, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything. Which one of you think is salt here? $500 $500 gift. <laughs> we are fine. 
Center one? Last one? Last. How do you know? I would tell you three of them are salt. And then one of them does not taste salty. What would you say? Oh, no, no, no. One of these things lost saltiness. Would you say that or you say that, no, it is not salt? What would you say? You say that it is not salt. You would not say that, yeah, yeah, you say that it is salt, yeah, it is salt, but it has lost its saltiness. There is no way that salt will ever lose its sodium chloride. In a similar manner, we as Christians, if we cannot have this commitment to serve him, we are kind of pretending Christians. We are pretending to be Christians, but we are not. We are not real Christians. Sorry for being hard on you. If you are the salt of the earth and you have to have the qualities of the real salt, the real Christian, which involves making disciples for Jesus, being the fishers of men. So Jesus warned them that they should not lose their saltiness in the face of opposition and persecution and life challenges. In a salt covenant, Trust and responsibility are never broken. In Telugu, we have this uh, saying, Mi means, I have eaten your salt, how can I betray you? I have eaten your salt, how can I break the relationship? They use that word even in my language in India. So when they say that word, everybody, the discussion is done. Like they say, yes. We got it. I mean, salt has that binding responsibility of being faithful to one's decision and commitment. So how can we lose that commitment when the persecution comes to us? When false theology is pushed on us in this country, when secular ideology, secular humanism so much forcefully pushed on us, and the temptations of the world creep into our day-to-day -day life. How can we lose our sanctity and then say that Jesus is no more divine? He was a good teacher. 26 years ago, when I was in my final year of Bachelor of Theology degree in southern state of India, I felt God was calling me to go to uh, one of the states in northern parts of India, uh, which is called Himachal Pradesh. It is uh, one of the toughest fields for evangelism. I did not fully know their language or culture. Before going there, I prayed with a group of friends for uh, six months and waited for graduation to be over. Meanwhile, I heard stories of how evangelists and preachers were um, ill-treated and barbarously beaten to death in that state. But I made my commitment to go there. And my father, being a pastor, he was waiting that I would go back to his home state after graduation and he, I would help him in his ministry. 
So I decided to go, graduation was over, and uh, I don't know how to communicate to my dad, but I told him, Dad, um, would you please come and meet me on the way at the railway station? I'm going to a mission field. I would come back after uh, two months. I love my dad. He's now 84. He has been in ministry for 60 years, faithfully serving the Lord. So I told my dad, you come and meet me in the railway station because I knew I may not come back alive. And my dad came and met me, and, uh, and I started my journey. You know, all I had was a suitcase with a couple of clothes, a bachelor of theology diploma, a thin bed sheet, and an $8. Unlike, you know, Western missionaries, I never planned too much, never did any fundraising. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I didn't have that opportunity. So I took my journey, three days, from all the way south to extreme north there, Delhi, without reservation to sit or sleep. Indian trains means you have to sometimes go with one leg. Very hard. And on the way, God wants to test my faith. Somebody stole my suitcase. That was all my wealth. That times, some people suggested me that I should go and complain to the station master and get down there. Then I was thinking, is this a test from the Lord or a temptation from Satan? Then I said to myself, I will continue my journey. And if I find a church somewhere, I will go and beg for some clothes and I will continue my journey. Even when I was deciding this, in the seminary, somebody told me, Manohar, Himachal is a hilly area, mountains, you are very skinny. Probably when you walk, you might lose one of your bones. That's what he told. They, he made fun of me, and he told, sometimes you may, you may lose your bones, they may fall behind you. I was that skinny. But I responded to him, brother, even if one of my bones falls down, I would not turn back and pick it up. I'm going. I went, I reached there, and I had a thin bed sheet. I come from the hottest place in India. Sam knows about it. And I, I was very poor in geography. I didn't know that Himachal is very cold. I went there, and I was kind of uh, shivering in my room. Afternoon. And uh, I was wondering what I'm going to do in the evening, and at around seven o'clock, and I was like kind of, you know, a dog, you know, putting tail inside and, you know, curling. That's the way I was kind of feeling. And then already 10 o'clock. I don't know what I'm going to do. I didn't have anything, right? Just a thin bed sheet. That time, the Lord gave vision to a man of God in the city. And he was able to see exact road, the room, and a man, me, crawling, shivering. He just went to bed. And the Lord told him, take the thick rajai, we call rajai, means which is like a mattress kind of thick one, which, which is, he's actually 
safeguarding it for many years. The Lord will take that out. And he knew if he wakes his wife up, she will not allow him. So he thought he doesn't want to wake his wife up. So he got up and it was drizzling and he took umbrella. He took that, he walked one and a half kilometers and he came and knocked my door. And I thought, I'm going to die that night because I knew nobody, nobody there. I thought it is somebody who kills Christians and then now they found me. And I didn't open for a while, as if nobody in the room. <laughs> but after a while, I had to open, and here is a tall man under umbrella, and he said, brother, praise the Lord. Oh, man. This is a Christian greeting in India, right? Praise the Lord. I said, oh, praise God. That means there is someone here that is Christian. And he said, brother, here is a blanket that you need. He said, oh, who told you about it? I said, no, no, I will tell you that story tomorrow. But you just take it, I need to get back to my home. I could tell you stories after stories how God showed himself to me that it was his plan that I should go there and these tests and sufferings are very normal. And within six months, a group of people caught me while I was distributing tracts, and they said, hey, Madrasi, means, they say Madrasis are little dark-colored people. He's, they basically said, a dark fellow. Why are you doing here? What are you doing here? You're supposed not to share about Jesus. If you want to be alive, you better leave this place and go back to where you come from. But you know, I was adamant for Christ. So I continued, and then again, after a few months, a gang of eight people caught me uh, in the bus station, and while everybody was watching, they took rods and beat me up until I became unconscious. They threw me near the road. After a while, somebody resuscitated me by sprinkling water on my face, and I limped back to my room, angry. Probably that was the first time someone outside my home ever put hand on me. When I say that, my dad was almost beating me every day. <laughs> that was natural. <laughs> so that time, that night when I was angry, the Lord spoke to me, saying he went through much, much horrible than what I went through. And he said, I haven't called you here to give you a comfortable stay, comfortable life. I have suffered for you. If only you are able to carry my cross. And I said, sorry, Lord. Next day, I was on the streets distributing the tracts. And after being there for a while, I left for higher studies. And then afterwards, one of the students came from there to the same seminary where I was studying after a year, and he said, are you Manohar James? I said, yes. And he said, I am the fruit of your ministry. I am the fruit of your ministry. Today there are so many churches and there are a couple of Bible schools in that place where I suffered. It all takes commitment. 
You have a call that doesn't mean anything if you do not attach commitment to that. That is what you being the salt of the earth. Salt means commitment. It's not just taste and other things that we often talk around. But for Jewish people, salt means it's all about commitment and mutual responsibility. That's what Jesus said to them. You are the salt of the earth. Do not lose that commitment even if there is a persecution. Even if there is a trouble and temptation, you should not lose your saltiness. Then Jesus continued telling them, you are the light of the world. Do not hide it. He's saying, it's a privilege for you to be the light of the world. Well, these disciples did not probably take it as if it is a privilege because they knew that God called the nation of Israel as a light. And in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he said, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The salvation responsibility was given to who? The people of Israel. But they have kept the light for themselves. They don't want to shine it for anybody else other than their own household. They became so theocentric to the extent that God only belongs to them. They don't want to share God with anybody else. You know, in the third century BC, even they built extra five feet wall within the temple courts of the Jerusalem temple to push Gentiles farther away from God. That's called Soreg Wall. It was not in the original plan of the temple. Think about Prophet Jonah. When God told him to go and preach the message of repentance to Nineveh, he didn't want to go because God would change his mind. Probably he will save all of them and he doesn't want to see them. So he took the direction opposite to the destiny. Opposite of the destiny. He just wanted to run away from God's plan. Because he doesn't want to see them saved. Think about disciples who heard that they are the salt of the earth. They are the light of the world. But they don't want to shine their light to the Gentiles initially. Think about Peter. Peter doesn't want to go to Cornelius' house because he was a Gentile. God has to intervene twice in his life. And even when he goes to Cornelius' house, he tells to him, you know what? We never come and sit with you. But still I came, you know what? Because I saw the dream. Look at his pride. He doesn't want to shine the light that Jesus had freely given to him. Do you know that it took almost 10 years for all these Jewish believers to go to the Gentile nations? All those 3,000 people and others came. They were all diaspora Jewish people. They were not Gentiles. It took almost 10 years after receiving the great commission to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every nation. They haven't done a thing to save the Gentiles. We are not any different from the disciples. Some of us consciously, subconsciously hide our light in our own boxes of shame, fear, uneasiness, 
pride, anxiety, reserved living, what not you add to that. You hide your light. And you shine your light as long as you are in the church or in the company of believers. And when you go into darkness, you are not shining at all. Why are you afraid of losing your dignity if you shine your light boldly? Why are you afraid of being called as a legalistic Christian? Don't worry about it. Why are you afraid of being called unintelligent when you share the gospel? You know, I did a PhD in intercultural studies from Asbury Theological Seminary. I had a dream. I wanted to become, I was already president of a seminary before coming to Asbury for 10 years, and then my dream was come to Asbury, get a PhD, go back, raise that seminary to be a world-class seminary, and have a Wikipedia page and write a bunch of books. That's it. That was my dream. And then God changed that dream when we went to India in 2011. My wife, wife and I, when we were traveling in train, God gave us a vision through a Hindu woman who challenged us why she's not accepting the gospel. And then we found the root cause was the biblical illiteracy in pastors. That's how we started this ministry of training pastors in India. And when we changed everything that we planned, like going there and being the president, have all kinds of privileges, to going to the villages and training these pastors. And one of the sponsors, he said to me, Manohar, you are overqualified to go and teach to those pastors. We didn't help you to waste your time. His dream was that I should be a professor, write, write a bunch of books. But I felt like it is better to be a fool on fire rather than being a scholar on ice. <laughs> That's what I chose. It's not hard, but it is hard. If you have commitment, it's not hard for you. I chose to be a fool on fire. So do not hide your light. You're not called to be a secret Christian. You're not called to be a secret Christian at all. Why are we hiding our light? Previously, we lived in a different state far from here. I used to take my wife uh, for her eyebrows to a house where a young woman was uh, running her business from home. When my wife gets her eyebrows done, I used to speak with uh, the young lady's mother in the living room. Every time we finish our work and come out of the home, we always felt bad and uh, felt burdened because we couldn't shine our light to them. One day, a friend of us told that that old lady, not that old, but older lady, uh, had breast cancer. So we prayed. Then when we had a chance to go back to that house for uh, Jasmine's eyebrows, I told that woman that we prayed for you. We heard that you, ha you have a breast cancer. She said, oh, thank you so much. She was touched by that message. And then as I was talking more, how Jesus healed me from a similar problem, 
um, and promising her that Jesus has power to heal the sick. The young lady who was working on Jasmine's eyebrows, she heard that and she came out and she took her cell phone and pulled out a Facebook post saying, look at this Manohar, I saved this post. This post says that there was a man who was crushed in an accident and there was no guarantee from doctors, but when Christian people prayed, he was healed. This lady, they are idol worshippers. They know nothing about Jesus. Because I shared this, and she came back with that, and she was sharing. You see how God is connecting these dots? Sometimes we are scared to do the evangelism at all. You see the lady who told us that this lady has the cancer? That lady is a pastor herself. She goes there for eyebrows threading, but she does not shine a bit of light in any darkness, but shines in the bright light in the church like this. Even when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, he did not mean this halogen Bible bulbs. He didn't mean that. He actually meant lamp. Lamp which shines by burning. Lamp shines by burning. That's what he meant. You cannot shine unless you burn yourself into flame. So this lady doesn't want to shine in darkness, doesn't want to burn there, but only shines amongst her own people. But we felt we wanted to do that. So when I shared with that woman who was suffering from breast cancer about Jesus healing, and she built up her faith. And then we led them in prayer. We spent there more than an hour. We led them into prayer. They all prayed with us in front of all the idols they had in the house. Sometimes it's very hard for us to lose sight of the things that God brings to our lives, even the lives that God brings into our life. I could tell one more story because this is the last service, you're not rushing, I believe. <laughs> when our boy was eight days old, we, my, my wife is so particular, she wants to dedicate our boy just exactly at eight days. I don't know where she gets from, but anyway. <laughs> So, and also, she's very particular, Pentecostal. She wants white and white clothes for him, for this little boy. So we went to Kohl's. And then we were looking for white clothes all over the store, and she didn't find even one pair. She did not. So she was going round and round. She, she was finding, but I, she didn't find it. But the Lord was telling me to speak with one tall man, roaming there with two girls, small girls. He's a Hindu from India. I never met him before. Go speak. So what I did, okay, well, Lord, I will go and speak. So I went, I want to talk to him, and I bypassed. And I went forward. <laughs> because I can't do it. I can't, how can I start conversation? So then again, I tried, I made one round, and again, I passed. I don't want to do it. It was hard for me. Finally, the Spirit of God said, go now. So I went. I don't know what kind of question 
I should ask an Indian. It's hard with Indians, at least. The others, it's okay. <laughs> and so the first thing I asked was, oh, you have wonderful kids. How many kids do you have? Will you, will you ask that kind of question to Americans? Yeah. I asked that question. That's stupid, but that's how God told me to do it. <laughs> and you know what he said? He actually was quiet for a while, and he said, <laughs> I'm sorry, we don't have kids. We don't have kids. What do you mean? In India, if you don't have kids after two years of marriage, you're done. Like literally, people will label you as if you're barren, you are cursed, you're, uh, you, you, you know, you're good for nothing. People don't even look at you in the morning. Hmm, this is very, so this man's face was so darkened when I asked this question. I said, brother, it's fine, tell me what. Then he said, uh, we don't have kids. I said, you have this beautiful, kid. no, no, they are not my kids, but they are my wife's sister's kids. So we are married for six years. Then I asked him, why are you worried? We didn't have a kid for 11 years. Oh, really? But now we have one right there. <laughs> then what would be his question next? He asked, can you tell me the doctor's name? Where did you go? I said, yeah, of course. I have all the secret. I will give it to you. <laughs> so then... I told him it's not just 11 years. And I told about a 60-year-old woman in India who actually gave birth during that time. I told that story. Then I said, do you know that there is another fellow who was 100 years old? He got a child. Oh, really? His name is Abraham and wife is Sarah. I, I told him as a history. And then he said, yeah. And their faith was so built. I called my wife. And then she said, Oh, Coles is good for nothing, and it has no white clothes for our children. I said, Coles is not good for clothes, but Coles is good for souls. <laughs> so this man gives his business card and tells me that I should visit him. When I saw that, it said, he's a research scientist in, in the university, a big guy. I'm saying, friends, do not hide your light. You're not called to be a secret Christian at all. This is what Paul tells to Ephesian believers in chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Now look at this verse carefully. He's not saying you are living in darkness, but he's saying you yourself are darkness. But God transformed you into light. And now you live as light. So knowing theology does not mean you are spiritual. Going to church regularly does not mean you are fulfilling the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That invites us to participate into his mission. We should make every effort to shine, not just bring our light out of hiding. It's a command 
to obey. It's not, it's not an option for Christian living. It's a command to obey, to shine before others. It's a privilege for us to be light in this world. You have to hold your light up so high that it can permeate every bit of darkness in the world. You have to burn for Jesus so that your brightness will increase. You are dimming your light because you're not burning inside. You're not burning inside. I thought of bringing a lantern. That's what what we lived with in India, you know, lantern which burns every time. I want to tell you the story of Nagaland. And uh, Nagaland is uh, one of the northeastern states. And uh, their people are called Nagas. They, are, they were animists and headhunters, lived in darkness for centuries. In the mid-19th century, Miles Bronson, an American Baptist missionary from USO, went to shine his light to these people. He took a rubber tent and an interpreter. He crossed dense forests, streams, and mountains to ask them, to let him go in so that he could learn the language and then shine the gospel of Jesus Christ before them. And he was the first Caucasian to visit that area. The villagers suspected him to be the spy of the British and did not allow him to go inside. But he was begging outside, asking, please, Allow me so that I come and shine gospel light before you. And then finally, he was allowed after two days being outside. And in 1951, he got first convert. And it took 20 years to get 15 more converts. And all these converts began to shine their light. Today, 90% of the state are identified as Christian. Now, Nagaland is known as the only predominantly Baptist state in the whole world. (laughs) Friends, God is calling us to shine the light. We are not called to merely show up, pay up, and shut up. We should not think that the work of evangelism and missions is only with the pastor and staff of the church or parachurch organizations. It is the responsibility of everyone, every one of us who are called into his marvelous light to be his missional people, his image bearers. Friends, I just want to end with this one. Another American Baptist minister, Bob Pierce, when he went to Korean islands, when he saw the pathetic children, And one of the women who was taking care of one of the child brought the child before Bob Pierce and asked what you can do for this child. He didn't have anything except $5. He just gave that $5. But he came back home, knelt down on his cot. Tears began to flow. And he prayed, Lord, let my heart be broken by the things that break your heart. That prayer became the foundation for world vision and Samaritan purse. When was the last time you prayed that prayer? Shall we close our eyes and seek God's face? Ask God, 
Break my heart with the things that break your heart. There are so many people in the world dying without Christ. Would you break my heart for them, for their souls? Let's worship him.